Well, so we are in the thick of the presidential campaign, and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to get political on you. I'm not that kind of preacher by any stretch, but I'm assuming that by now you've, you've, you've started to kind of become familiar with some of the distinctives of the different uh, presidential hopefuls. Uh, you've, you've probably learned a little bit about each candidate, and so you start to understand what maybe a, a nation led by Hillary would look like, or a nation led by the Donald, what that might look like, or a, a nation led by Jeb Bush, or by Bernie Sanders, or by Ben Carson, and you're starting to kind of get some distinctives and learning a little bit a little bit about those guys. And, and, and this morning what we're going to do is we're going we're to look at some distinctives of a kingdom led by Jesus. A kingdom led by Jesus. That is life under the rule and the reign of Jesus. And, and let me just remind you that this is not some wishful kingdom, kind of like a presidential hopeful. This is a kingly certainty. This will happen. His kingdom will come and it will have no end. But for now, it's, it's really just getting started. But it's going to come in fullness. It's going to come in, in power at this undisclosed date. And until then, we get to pray that great line out of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We do that until his kingdom is, is fully realized. And until that day, he's got these little kingdom outposts along the way and you could think of churches or kingdom outposts as as embassies so to speak we have american embassies kind of all over the 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 country or all over the globe rather and, and they serve the goals of our country throughout the world and embassies also will help the the marginalized and the oppressed throughout the world with some of the benefits of democracy and our embassies will help those American citizens who are living abroad outside of the country. They become places of refuge. They become places of support for American citizens. And so in some way, our churches are kind of like little embassies. And we who make up each local church are kind of like ambassadors. Right? We are kingdom ambassadors, ambassadors at large will represent the president or a king uh, abroad through their, their embassies and the embassy's action. And so for us ambassadors for Jesus, we're pursuing peace and hope and love and restoration for our world. And for us, our embassy, our outpost is this particular local church, not a building, but a gathering of people, a clustering of people. And in today's passage, we get some distinctives of our little gathering, our little kingdom outpost, as Jesus outlines it. So Luke chapter 17, 1 through 10. You can go ahead and turn on over there. You can scroll on your device. We've got Bibles around the room if you need uh, one of those. But Luke 17, 1 through 10, we're in this one-year journey straight through the, the book of of Luke as Jesus kind of ramps up his teaching on the, the kingdom and we've been joining him in that ramp up by focusing in on the kingdom of God with what we're calling the upside down kingdom because it's countercultural, it's perplexing to people, it makes them turn their head. What's going on here? It, it turns the cultural norms upside down. And what Jesus has been doing and Luke has been sharing some distinctives of his kingdom. We're going to grab a few more today, distinctives of kingdom outposts or local churches. And this is not speaking to the eternal kingdom of God. Here's why. Because these distinctives are speaking specifically with regards to sin. And in the eternal kingdom, on the other side of the grave, sin will be completely eradicated. Sin will be no more. Our sin struggles, our failures, you feel that? I feel that. They will be completely over with. And since this passage will be talking about sin, it's talking about kingdom life on this side of the grave. You with me? All right, good. You're with me. So, so some of you, you're already in on this. You already are in on the kingdom outpost on this side of the grave. Others of you, it's available to you, but you haven't really fully utilized it or even learned how to fully utilize it benefits of the embassy while you are abroad and, and others of you you're you're just not in on this yet and I'm inviting you 
into a relationship with Jesus and into the resource of refuge and protection and care of a local church family. So let's read this. Luke chapter 17, 1 through 3a. I'll say this, that the words of God are all inspired. The little verse numbers are not inspired. They were added later, so the Holy Spirit didn't say, this will be verse number 3. They just wrote it. It's carried along by the Holy Spirit, and later these verses were added. I, I think we should have ended at halfway through three and then started three, but that's just me. You ready? 17.1, it says, And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. All right. This is um, some really, really important stuff that we get here. The, the first clue to what Jesus is talking about is who he's talking to. And if you want to do a little work with me, you can look there and figure out who he's speaking to. It says, verse 1, he said to his disciples, right? He, he had been talking through the majority of chapter 16 specifically to non-disciples, to Pharisees, but now he's speaking to his disciples, to his followers. And the first thing that he warns them, you'll notice, is temptation to sin are sure to come. And, and listen, I'm so glad that he says this because it tells me that I'm normal, that I'm not a freak, well, maybe, kind of mostly, I guess. Anybody in here this week, this is you? Temptation to sin, you, you've been tempted to sin. Maybe you've, you've given in to, to sin yourself or, or you struggled to live in such a way that would, would honor the Lord. And this is telling us that you are normal. Please don't think that, that you're among a group of people who do not struggle. Now, we have to, to, to fight as a church family against pro- projecting this facade of perfection. Because a lot of people assume that in, in the life of a church. And, and, and one thing that we, we often struggle with doing is sharing our struggles. And in not sharing our struggles, we're kind of projecting this, hey, we've got it all together, so you stay closed and you stay closed and don't talk because I got it together. When we all don't have it together, right? We have to be very, very mindful of being open and honest about the fact that, that we struggle because when we don't talk about our our, our struggles people come into this place and and hang out with the church family and they start to assume that wow this Christian faith is really easy for them it's not so much for me so I don't really belong here and listen it's hard for us too who are believers it's it's a struggle it's regardless of how spiritual you are regardless of how many times a day or a week you, you read your bible how frequent you you pray how many church events you go to how long you've been plugged into the life of a church or how long you've been a christian or if you grew up in the church or not it says temptations to sin are sure to come every single one of us will struggle are you struggling i'm struggling I'm struggling. I feel it every single day. And now Jesus goes on and he says, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now he's talking about this person who's the agent for temptation. He's now talking to the person who causes other people to struggle with sin. He says, it'd be better for you to have cinder blocks tied to your ankles and thrown into the depths of the Charles River, Whitey Bulger style, than for you to cause a weaker person to struggle with sin. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the church, the the local kingdom outpost, is supposed to be just the opposite of a place that causes people to struggle. It's supposed to be a place that causes people to be strengthened and to have shelter. Now, let's think a little bit more systematically about this, if we can, together. There are a couple of sources of, of sin. There's, there's sin that's just natural sin, right? It's just natural. Let's call it organic sin. <laughs> it's, just, it's just natural. It just comes out of a corrupted heart, right? We are born, the scriptures tell us, with a, a, a sin 
nature. That's just, it, we just don't have to try. I never had to teach my kids how to hit each other. They just do. They're not doing it because I'm hitting other people to get what I want. That's just what they, they do, right? It's natural, organic sin. And then there's sin that comes by way of someone else, an agent for temptation. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and, and with this temptation, it can come, this kind of temptation can come from outside of the church community, outside of our fellowship, our, our covenant church family. Like Proverbs 7, we'll talk about that there's this, this type of woman who will cause men to struggle and to fall, and men should run from this woman because she's a tease, because she's flirtatious. She likes to just keep putting herself in front of you. She's sensual. She's seductive. But she's not really interested in you. She's just trying to make herself feel good by causing you to choose her over your wife. She's trying to make herself feel better, like I'm desirable. But ultimately, Proverbs will tell us that she will destroy you. It's not just women. 2 Timothy 3 says that there's this type of man, NIV says it this way, who worms his way into homes in order to gain control over gullible women. And so those are threats outside of the church. And there's all kinds of threats outside of the church. And those are absolutely to be expected. But then what Jesus is speaking about here, because he's talking to his disciples, not the Pharisees any longer, he's saying there are also threats within the church. And those threats are almost a little bit more dangerous, aren't they? The, the threats within, because, because they're unexpected. So in my early years of, of ministry, my younger years, I was uh, working with teenagers quite a bit and, and college students. And one of the things I would do is I would organize these massive paintball games. And we'd gather at this one spot in the woods. We'd have these big paintball games with 30-plus people. And uh, it, was, it was a ton of fun. It was just a way to connect with, with people. And, and, and they'd all come out, and they'd bring their, their guns. And we'd play Capture the Flag and all kinds of different games together. But we'd always have, like, a kid or two who showed up and just didn't have a gun but wanted to, wanted to play. So I, ca- I came up with this game. I called it Mr. President. And I said, all right, buddy, you don't have a gun, so you want to be the president? That sounds really cool, doesn't it? Yeah. And Okay, you can be the president. You don't have a gun. And then these guys are going to be your secret service. And then everybody else, you go out in the woods. And their goal, secret service and the president, is to walk the president from this side of the woods all the way over there to that side of the woods, protecting the president. Doesn't that sound awesome? In other words, this kid was just about to get lit up completely, and that's exactly what happened. What I started to notice that these kids never came back again to, to play paintball and hang out with us. And so I said, all right, that's not working. So I bought a couple extra paintball guns. And I said, okay, for the kids who come without a gun, this will be, be their gun, and they can borrow it for the day, and that'll be fun for them. And, and But these kids, they didn't have their own gun, and so they were kind of inexperienced. And so it was always a bummer if you got that kid on your team, because what seemed to always happen, these kids didn't quite know how to shoot the gun. They didn't have practice. They didn't have a feel for it. And if you're on their team, you're, you're out there, you're on the front lines, and they're back, kind of nervous, trying to figure this thing out. You're on their team, you just you get popped in the back of the head, right? You get shot in the back of the head. It's what we call friendly fire, right? And friendly fire, in a way, is more dangerous than enemy fire because you're not expecting, you're not looking for it. You're just doing your thing, and pow, it gets you right in the back of the head. In fact, one of my friends had his eardrum ruptured by friendly fire on the paintball field. Jesus says, woe to you who are guilty of friendly fire. By causing your teammates, by causing your brothers and sisters of the faith to fall. That you're an agent of temptation on the inside. Now, here's our first distinctive. I'm going to give you three, if you're a note taker, of kingdom outposts. The first distinctive is that kingdom outposts, or the local church, is a shelter from shots. It's a shelter from shots. And and all of these distinctives are about your care and about your strengthening. That's that's the heart that Jesus is putting across here. I care for you. I want you to be strengthened, or the Bible uses this word, sanctified. You will grow in holiness. And our first is shelter from shots. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, we face death all day long. Like all day long, we're, we're facing death. We're, people are targeting us, trying to take us out, trying to pull us down. Outside of the, the church community, some of you know it, it's tough. 
in your workplace. Some of you it's tough in your dorm. Some of you it's tough in the family even that you're going to, to see for Thanksgiving. I know a little bit about that with the family we hang out with for, for Thanksgiving. It's tiring. Maybe it's even hostile in some of the conversations that you have. But Jesus says, I've created these places, these, these groupings of people for you, these covenant communities, these, these church families, for you to receive shelter from all that fire that's coming at you, for you to receive care, for you to receive support. And, and a side question for, for all of us this morning. How are you contributing to creating that kind of space, that kind of family? How do, how do you view church? Is it an event that you come and you watch? Or is it something that you come and participate in and you engage in? And it's not just a one day, a couple of hours a week, but it goes throughout the course of your week. When you, when you come to the gathering like this, are your eyes looking all over the place saying, who can I support? Who can I care for? Who can I pray for? Who needs a hug? Who can I sit with that maybe needs some support? Some people this morning even got up uh, hours earlier so that they could come and, and set this place up. Others people, they walked in here and, and said, who, who is it that, that looks hurt and, and maybe needs some prayer? Or, or who's struggling with their, their kids and they're just going nuts and maybe I can come and, and I can, can help them? Who, who, who has issues outside of this place that I can maybe try to meet? People have those kind of eyes. Many of you have those kind of eyes. Jesus is saying, this is what I want for you. I want you to create this kind of community. That's what Jesus is, is creating. That's his, his heart. But if you're on the inside, engaging in, in friendly fire, he says, it's better for you just to be sunk to the bottom of the sea with a millstone, which is one of those big circular stones, and a donkey would walk around, and they would be grinding and doing work. Take one of those several hundred pound stones, put it around your neck. It's better for you to do that. Your death would have less eternal consequences than if you were in here engaging in friendly fire, causing people to struggle and to fall into to sin. Now, there are numerous ways in which that can begin to happen. We don't have time to talk about all of them because we could just go on and on and on and on about what friendly fire in the church looks like, but I'll give you two of the less obvious forms of friendly fire because I think Jesus likes to do this extreme thing. He'll, he'll show us extremes so that we know that everything else within the extreme falls. And so let me give you a couple of extremes. And one is one that maybe you would never think about, but complacency is friendly fire. So now we're on the hook, aren't we? Because it was easy to say, yeah, well, these, no, we're on the hook. Complacency is friendly fire. If you're living a half-hearted faith, consider that friendly fire. If you're living a lukewarm kind of faith, consider that friendly fire. We often think about temptation as this overt visible destructive sins like partying too hard or 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 maybe causing a little one to to come and do something that they shouldn't do or some kind of sexual sin but but it's the subtle temptations that are the hardest to spot and the easiest to slowly get caught up into example parents are you leading your children your family to pursue lesser things than full-on life of devotion to Jesus, maybe overly valuing education, money, success, sports in your own heart, which is an example to your children as to what's important, maybe more so than, than Christ. That's, that's friendly fire on your children. If you're not a parent, maybe it's gossiping, and people think that's, that's okay, okay, and, and that's putting temptations to engage in that gossip with you. Maybe it's complaining. Friendly fire. It's friendly fire. Maybe you hear a call to live your life on mission time and time and time again, but the reality is your greatest mission in life is your own career. Friendly fire. You're setting out that norm of complacency in front of you and around you, and it's not fostering that kind of community 
that is a community of strength and, and care and training and recalibrating people's minds into what is most important. And so ultimately, it's harmful living a life of complacency, not fostering that kind of community. The other not-so-obvious kind of friendly fire, now to go on the other extreme, is false teachers. False teachers. As you read through the records of the, the Christian church, the greatest damage to the church was not done by kings and military powers, as some might think. In fact, as you look through history, those actually strengthen the church because as times of heat come upon Christians, it seems to purify them and the posers bail and the people who are really living for Jesus really live for Jesus and others on the outside say, wow, they must really believe this. And when that happens, militarily or kingdoms oppressing Christians, you know what? The church actually has gotten stronger. But the not-so-obvious fire are these, these false teachers who tend to be not kings and, and military powers, but pastors and teachers and seminary professors and, and authors. They've done the greatest damage to the church, historically speaking. And it's all over the scriptures. Let me just give you a, a sampling of these scriptures if I can. Second uh, Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. Listen, listen carefully. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, you want to do the right thing. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul's saying, listen, Some will come and they will proclaim a different Jesus, a different gospel, a message. It's just slightly distorted. It doesn't seem all that far off, right? Maybe it's just a new way of looking at it. And they're slowly pulling you away. Here's another one. 2 Peter 3, 15-17 says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I love that. You like that? He just said, this is Peter, fisherman. He's like, you're reading Paul? That's tough. There's some things that he says that is that's hard to understand. He says, there's some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. He said, there's some stuff that Paul says that's really tough to understand, and some people can kind of twist it and make it say what they want it to say or say things that it, it doesn't say. Faith without works is dead. That must mean that your works earn your salvation. Is that what he's trying to say? No, but you can twist it if you have trouble understanding it. He's saying it, it can be twisted, and you need to be very careful that you're not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, he says. Here's another one, 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So some people become teachers, preachers too early when they don't know the Bible and they make these confident, bold assertions, but they're wrong. And for leaders of the church, they must be able to spot these false teachers and refute these false teachers. Listen to a qualification for a, an elder in a church, a leader in a church. Titus chapter 1, 9 through 11 says, he, that's a church elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That's what an elder has to be able to do, is to know the word, hold on tightly to the word, to the the message of Jesus, and give instruction in right doctrine, and refute people who are twisting and leading others astray. He goes on, he says, here's why. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In that latter piece there, in Titus. Do you hear the motivation behind this? The motivation behind this is to protect families from teachers who are in it for shameful gain. If you send me money, God will bless you. 
He says, elders, leaders of a church, you've got to protect your people from that garbage. And so one of the things that we do at our leadership meetings in the life of our, our, our church eldership leadership is we'll ask questions uh, to discuss this kind of stuff. Like, so what, what books are gaining popularity? Have you heard about this, this book that's getting floated around? Does it teach what the scriptures actually say or is it a little bit twisted? And we, we, we look out for that kind of stuff. Or what worship bands are people listening to? We really love this band. Their music's awesome. And so you can go onto iTunes and you can download their music. And just below that, you can download their pastor of their church who's preaching twisted false doctrine. You see the danger there? And so we have to be very careful to even what songs we're singing so as to protect you. But the lyrics are great. They're talking about Jesus and love and, and hope. But you may like that song, download it, get led to another preacher who's leading you astray so we're not singing their songs. Just trying to protect you from friendly fire, out of love, out of care, over families, over individuals. Protection, that's the, that's the goal here. The church provides shelter from shots. You're going to get a lot of shots outside. We want to protect you from getting that in, in here. Then, connected to that thought, as I said, beginning of three, he says, so pay attention to yourselves. So that's where we start to evaluate our own hearts. Am I guilty of firing off friendly fire within the life of the church? In my teaching, perhaps? In my recommendation of books, perhaps? In, in overt sins? Or in the sins of omission? That's complacency. Am I guilty? You also got to ask yourself, am I being hit by friendly fire complacency for example am i just sliding into status quo even though it's not what the the scriptures say am i reading things that are not sound teaching you have to ask these questions to yourself pay attention to yourself moving forward the church provides shelter from shots here's the next one though the church is is watchful for wandering that's it's really important that that we're watchful for wandering. Do you like the idea of being watched? No. Nobody likes the idea uh, of being watched. But we've got to admit, it's a good thing to be watched at times, right? You remember elementary school, middle school, high school, hey, maybe even college, when, when the teacher's away? Come on, right? It's important to be watched. Read with me Luke 17, 3b. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So now he's talking about spiritual siblings, brothers, sisters in, in, in the faith. And one distinctive of kingdom outposts, of, of church family, is that you've got people who love you and who are looking out for you. Not just the spiritual leadership, but people among you who are looking out for you. That they care for you. They're your, they're your brothers and sisters in the faith. Hopefully you, you've learned to develop or, or are learning to develop those kinds of eyes where you're looking out for each other. Now, what we're talking about is addressing sin in each other's lives. Probably the, the least popular, least practiced element of, of church life. People don't tend to, to like that. And so a, a great help, but also a, a huge maybe point of, of tension in, in our marriage, for example, for those of you who are married, is, is driving. <laughs> Anybody? Like, it's great to have a spouse when you're driving, but it's awful to have a spouse when, when you're driving. Am I lying? Right? Somebody just said, preach. <laughs> you like it when they help you drive? But if I were to be honest, there have been times where I'm backing out of a tight spot and the snow mounds are piled up in the dead of winter. Hey, babe, can you look around that? corner and she's a help or, or I'm pulling out of a crazy intersection but there's a bend over here and they're flying at me this way hey you look right I'll look left and, and there's there, there's a, a help and if temptations to sin are sure to come it's a gift from God to have people in your life who can see your blind spots you, you need people in your life who can see those those blind spots right to help you with sin out of love because sin is harmful. 
And they don't want you to get harmed. They don't want you to crash. They want your, your well-being. And so that word rebuke that we read about there is kind of one of those words that's kind of gotten a bad rap. Kind of like when I say to my daughter, she's running out into the street because she's happy and she wants to play. Nora, stop! She doesn't like to be told to stop. It's not her favorite word. It's not my favorite word to have to say. But I'm seeing something that she's not seeing. And that is a car flying down the road. It's for her good. Stop! Please stop! And a church family protects you. A church family provides that for you, those extra set of eyes. And it can be uncomfortable to receive this. It can certainly be uncomfortable to to give this. If you love to give this, there's probably something wrong in your heart, right? If you don't struggle with this when it needs to happen, when when, when it's coming and, and, and you need to call somebody out or just address some sin out of love and care for them, if you're not feeling the struggle in your heart, you're not prayerful about it, you just, hey, it's fun for me. I get to point it out. There's probably something off in your heart. I'll say this, one way to to make it not so big of a confrontation is just to practice it regularly, to to, to make it a a regular part of your spiritual practice. Ryan and I, this this past week, got to be in on something just really, really beautiful. It was this series of pastoral assessments for people who are looking to be pastors in, in the area. And so we had the pastors and their wives and these were guys and, and ladies who were willing to come under some assessment. They're saying, hey, look at my life. Give me some, some input. And so we got to look in on their, their doctrine and on their leadership practices and on their, their, their preaching and on their, their, their marriage and, and, and family life. There were pastors there. There were experienced leaders there. There were marriage and family counselors there. Leadership guru. It, it was incredible. And we got to sit there, and the whole time I'm sitting there with Ryan, I'm thinking, I wish everybody could undergo this. This is really powerful. We weren't there to beat anybody up. Instead, we were there to help people identify their strengths and to help them identify their their struggles, the the blind spots, maybe the things that they're not seeing. And they're saying, I want that. I'm coming to this. I, I want that. It was so helpful. It was so healthy. It was beautiful. And maybe in that process, we saved some busted up marriages. Maybe in that process, there were some children that were going to be hurting 10 years down the road as teenagers because their, their dad had this proclivity to just completely immerse himself in work and get so blinded and consumed that he just ignores his children because of good things like church ministry. And maybe in the process, we saved some children from running from the Lord, not wanting it because they, what, what they grew up in in the church was terrible. Maybe we even saved some churches from falling apart and imploding by bad leadership. Who knows? It was, it was beautiful. And we did it out of, out of love and out of care. And sin needs to be addressed out of love and out of care for, for other people. Galatians chapter 6, 1 says it this way. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Give me that word gentleness not ha gotcha in a spirit of gentleness and then it says keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted because you you're not perfect either you can't go pointing out other people's struggles blind spots and not be tempted yourself to start feeling puffed up and like i got it together it says no your goal is restoration you do it at a out of a spirit of gentleness You do it in such a way where you're mindful that you're flawed and you're sinful as well. And that word caught, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Speaking of like an animal, Jesus talks about the the sheep, the hundred and the ninety-nine and the one goes astray. It's like that animal that goes astray, that sheep that goes astray and then gets caught in in the thicket, in, in, in the bushes there. Not caught as in hot, busted. Red-handed in your sin. But caught is in your, your trap. You, you can't get out. And let me, let me help you out. Let me, let me help you see what, what's happening back here. You're, you're twisted up. Let me, let, me help you, let me help you get out. Right? Maybe it's this relationship that you're in. It's not honoring to, to God. This, this behavior, it could potentially destroy your marriage. You're, you're growing distant from the Lord. I'm noticing this. Are you seeing this? There, there, maybe there seems to be a pattern of gossip in your life. 
Or when you said this in group, it was really insensitive and, and, and not soft. You see how that could have been perceived? This is done out of love and out of, out of care. He's not calling us to be spiritual hall monitors. Anybody get the privilege of being a hall monitor in fourth grade? I did. I don't know why. But I got this orange sash with a little badge on it. And I was like, I got the power. Right? I was just up there and just pointing at everybody. Your shoelace is untied. You're walking too fast. Just, you just, it's fun, right? Stupid. I didn't really care about anybody's safety. It made me feel good to call people out in the hallway. That's not what he's saying. Violation, violation. No, we address sin. We rebuke out of a concern for people. So Jesus says, and if they repent, you forgive. Did you hear that? You don't hold it against them? This is good. They've seen it. They've repented. Beautiful. Awesome. Now, is there room for error? Maybe somebody's called you out on sin or, or sought to sit down and address sin with you, and maybe they were just flat out wrong. That's two people. That's completely possible. That's why in Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20, you want to write that down. That's a really important passage. Maybe go home and read it at some point throughout the, 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 the course of the week. Jesus lays out this process more fully. Here he just gives us one piece of it. But in Matthew 18, he lays out the process more fully. He says, so one person can go and address the issue. That's where you start. One-on-one in a friendship, in a relationship. And if they say, you're right, I see it, great. But because there's a possibility that that person could be wrong... He says, then bring one or two other people along with you if they don't turn. If they say, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? Really? No. And so you bring one or two others along. People who can verify what you're seeing. Yes, this is, we see this. This is a pattern in your life. Now, now here's what you're not to do if you're ever in that position. You're not to go find people who, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll buy into it. Yeah, and no, you find people who, who genuinely care and they also see this pattern. You're not lobbying for votes. That's stupid. We're doing this out of love and concern for people. Other people see it, one or two others, you go along. And if multiple people are addressing this, they're probably right. And then, hopefully, your heart's soft and you say, okay, I guess there's other people seeing this. I see what you're talking about. I repent, you turn, you ask forgiveness, great. But if not, Jesus goes on in Matthew 18. He says, if not, tell it to the church. That means bring it before church leadership with your two, three people. And then they can provide some wisdom. They can provide some counsel. They can provide some input. Yeah, we, we're seeing this. Or, or no, you know, have you guys considered that maybe you were kind of feeding off of each other and getting, maybe let's go, let's address this together. And they can do that. Or if they say, you're right, let's bring it to them and they don't repent, then maybe it needs to come before the church covenant family in a sense. And the, the, the seriousness of it, it grows larger. I'd say that really is, is representative of their sphere of influence. You're not going to do that with a 15-year-old girl in sin. But somebody leading a ministry, perhaps, and if they repent, praise God, you forgive them. But if they don't repent... It says in Matthew, treat them as a publican and as a tax collector. Now, lots of people have said, well, that means ostracize them. Is that what we do with publican and tax collectors? Does Jesus say, hate those people, separate yourself from those people, don't hang out with those people? Is that what he ever said? He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who who persecute you. And so it just means treat them as a publican and as a tax collector. It means treat them as a non-believer. They're living a life. Their actions are saying, I'm not going to follow God on this. I've had multiple people, a church family, approach me on this. And I don't hear it. I'm not going to obey God in this. And so it says, then treat them as a non-believer, a non-Christian. Now, how do we treat a non-Christian? We treat them with love. With care, with grace, with I'm trying to serve you, I'm trying to care for you, I I want you to see Jesus in my life. So you can start to see the, the provisions, this beautiful system that Jesus has set up so that church leaders don't go astray, so that people in the church don't start pointing fingers, so that people who are in sin don't start to wander. It's a beautiful system that Jesus has set up, a beautiful family, community, 
outpost of, of care. Now, last distinctive here. Read with me Luke 17, verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Our last distinctive is freedom for failure. How beautiful is that? Jesus says seven times and he repents seven times, you must forgive him every single time. Now in the scriptures, the the number seven is used as this number of completion or of totality. In other words, within the church family, a person has total freedom to completely blow it and still be forgiven and loved and accepted should they turn from sin and turn to God. One of the beautiful distinctives of the church is that we are a community of grace. Why? Because we're a community founded on grace. We're linked together, not as we're a separation of people who are super holy and do things right. Therefore, we can look down our spiritual noses at other people. That's what religion is. No, we're founded on the fact that we're a group of people who say, I'm not so great. I'm sinful. I need a savior. I'm going to turn to Jesus as the only way. Jesus, forgive me my sins. I want to live my life to follow you. And we're a group of people who say we're imperfect and we're trusting in Jesus. We want to follow him all the days of our lives. We're founded on grace. And so we're to always live perpetually as a people of grace. You have freedom to fail within the context of a church family and then to stand up again and to fail and then to stand up again and then to fail and then to stand up again and fail. And some of you, you just, you feel like that's your life. Keep moving forward. That's why Jesus gives us these beautiful examples. The prodigal son, I mean, he way messed up, probably more than any of us maybe know. Or maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's, you, you relate with some of the people that he was going to touch and, and, and spiritual people don't want to be around you, your struggles, if they knew all the things that you did in secret. Jesus, I know everything. Yet he kept extending grace, 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 grace. But then he'd say, stand up and go and sin no more. So grace coupled with, I'm going to sanctify you, grow you in holiness and the way that I want to do that is through this church family. You have freedom to fail. And when we know that we're loved, failures and flaws and awe, there's this level of support. There's this level of freedom and comfort and beauty and acceptance that the world has tremendous trouble replicating, huh? I love mornings in my home. There's just something about mornings happened uh, this morning as well that just speaks to Jesus and grace and mercy and church for me. Let me explain. In the mornings, we wake up, and I'm an early riser, and I'll get up and read my Bible and drink some coffee or read a book or something and pray. And I'm always the first up in my house. And then my kids, my wife will, will get up and, and come down and it doesn't matter what happened the night before. Come morning, we're over it. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter if my kids went to bed early. That seems to happen pretty frequently these days. Out of discipline, you're going to bed an hour early tonight. And they're pouting up there and they're mad at me. They wake up and it's over. And they come down, they'll sit on my lap. Scriptures will say that his mercies, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. And they come down, and it's, it's over. And they'll come down and, and sit on my lap, and then they'll look at Daddy and whoosh, breathe on my face with that nasty morning breath. And I love it. <laughs> Is that weird? They'll come down in the morning, just no awareness of how bad their breath is. The kids will come down in the morning, and their hair's all boing, and they have no awareness of how bad their hair looks. I'll tell you, the first day of school this year, it's the first time it happened with my middle son, Luca. Started getting concerned about what he looks like. I've watched him. He gets out of the car. I drop him off at the curb. He gets out of the car, takes a couple steps. He turns around, looks in the tent, and goes, (laughs) straightens out his hair. 
didn't see that I was looking through at him. I said, oh, he cares what other people think about him. That doesn't happen on Saturday mornings. He doesn't care what he looks like. All day long, it's sticking straight out, right? Why? Because of family. That's what Jesus is looking to build. That's what you get to be a part of. Let me ask you, are you fostering this kind of community? Where people can be known and seen, warts and all, struggles and all, their past and all. And they can be forgiven. They can fall again. And they'll know that they'll still be forgiven. And I'm going to do it again. Oh, I don't want to, but it, it happens. And they're still forgiven. And you don't hold it against them. In that culture, for the Jewish people, it was three times was the limit. Jesus says seven times. But it even means eight, nine, ten, a thousand times because it's the number of completion. That's what Jesus is building. And so application question, what are you doing to foster this kind of community? Are you doing anything to foster this kind of community? Do you need this kind of community? Maybe your silence is, is fostering that kind of community. I'm not going to be the first to share my struggles. Is church more of an event to you? Or is it a family? Is it an event I go to or a community I belong to? Start to round third base. I just want to read the next couple of chunks here. Look at 17, 5, and 6. So the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's as if the disciples were saying, yeah, we want that. Lord, help us believe that that's actually going to happen, that it actually could be so, that there really could be a community like that. To which Jesus says, it's not the amount of your faith, it's the presence of your faith. That there's just some faith there. Just act on what little you have. What if we all acted just took one action step out of this to foster this kind of community, entrusting the Lord in what he's trying to build. We could move mountains, as the other scriptures will say. If we all just took little steps towards building this kind of community, it would start to emerge more and more and more and more. And now to close up the, the parable, look with me at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. As we've said along the way through the book of Luke, it's a parable and we need to be careful not to overly dissect parables and read too much into it. Very simply, Jesus is saying the servant did what he was supposed to do. And the key phrase is, does the master thank his servant for doing what he was commanded? Jesus is saying, this kind of life that we're to be living in, this kind of community, it's expected of us. This is how we are to roll. We are to be an ever-deepening community of believers. One that provides shelter. One that provides strengthening or sanctification. One that is watchful of each other. One that provides freedom to struggle and to grow. And, And as you start to grow, as you live in this kind of community, never become puffed up and, and think more highly of yourself than you ought. It's always only Jesus. It was his work on the cross for you. It was his idea to create that kind of community. Don't you dare start strutting around and puffing your chest out like you're something that you're not. It was always Jesus. Maintain this posture of humility and growth and and care as you start to see this beautiful sanctification emerging out of this kind of community that he wants us to be. It's an awesome passage. I'm praying that God would just allow us to increasingly become 
this community, an ever-deepening community of believers, a kingdom outpost, a place of shelter, a place of refuge, a place of protection, a place of rallying the troops to send them back out on the mission that God has for us, stronger and better. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us this scripture. We're thankful that you and your perfect knowledge knew exactly what we need. That in the midst of an increasingly hostile world, we have an increasingly deepening place of shelter and care and refuge and strength. Lord, help us to not see the church as a place, as an event that we go to, but a community that we belong to, that we're also seeking to foster an ever-deepening culture. So God, do that in us. Give us eyes to see other people, their needs, and how we can help them. And as we all get our eyes off of self and get our eyes onto other people, I pray, Lord, that we would just grow and grow and grow and grow. And God, if there's anybody today who, that, you know what, they, they hear this, but they don't know it because they've never really engaged in it. But help them to take some practical steps towards fostering the community that you want to build. God, if there's anybody in here who they're hearing for the first time that grace and love that Jesus affords to them, despite their sin and their failure, God, I pray that they would respond. They would come to Jesus. You've placed your truth right in front of their hearts and you're stirring them up this morning. May they repent, turn from sin and turn to you. If that's you in the best way you know how, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, pray to him, call to him. Saying something, Something simple, something like, Jesus, I recognize that you've made me for you and I've turned from you. I've lived independent from you and I've sinned and I've struggled. But I realize what you've done for me on the cross is that you came to earth to rescue me, to live perfectly, undeserving of the wages of sin, which is death. You died. Thank you. I trust in that alone. I recognize that you came back to life. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want you to be king over my life forever. That's you. Let somebody know that you began a relationship with Jesus. God, thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for how you're deepening our church family. some ways I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because I just see it all the time. People really seeking to foster this kind of community. But Lord, I think about what you say in 1 Thessalonians, that we're to excel still more. Help us to go deeper and deeper and deeper and never be satisfied. That you through us would build something beautiful, something countercultural, something upside down until the day that we die and we see you face to face or the day that you come back and that kingdom is fully realized. We long for it. But we do pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.